right, good evening, Mission Ebenezer, welcome. Good to see everybody in the house of God tonight. It's a beautiful uh, Wednesday in uh, what is called, in many Christian traditions, the Advent season, which kicked off on Sunday. Um, it's not one of those traditions that the Assemblies of God, which is the denomination that we're part of, is uh, familiar with ultimately, but it's a moment that reminds us that we are making our way toward Christmas, the birth of Jesus, um, where we celebrate the birth of our Savior, um, and it's a, a wonderful story that we uh, love to continue to remind ourselves of uh, uh, year after year, uh, the coming of Jesus. So, uh, we're, getting, we're excited to, to start on that trajectory. I see Pastor Josh is in the house. Last week we, um, we spent some time uh, opening up the microphones here in the front and we had testimonies. How many were blessed by testimonies last week? And we just shared um, uh, praise reports and things that we were thankful for. But uh, Pastor, two weeks ago, Pastor Josh and myself, we, uh, we came up here in the front for those who aren't with us a couple weeks ago, and, and we made a little bit of a, a friendly Christian wager, and, and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, when USC was playing UCLA, the, the deal was if UCLA won, because he's a graduate from UCLA, um, that I would wear UCLA gear on a Wednesday night, and, uh, but if USC wins, and I'm a graduate from USC, then he would have to wear Trojan gear. So how does he look in that, uh, that cardinal and gold? Check him out. <laughs> she can't believe it. Look at Mama. Mama Mo can't believe it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Okay, this is, this is the last time you're going to see me in this outfit, uh, um, at least until next year. We're going to have to decorate this. Oh, he came ready too. Oh my gosh. This is too much. This is, too... this is how USC people bundle up on uh, LA, LA uh, December weather. They're soft. All right, you guys won. I'll wear it. How long do I have to wear it? For a year until the next game. <laughs> no, just, just for tonight, just for tonight. And then you can take it off and go take a shower or whatever. Whatever you got to do. That was a good game, though. It was a tight game. Battle for L.A. stays on the 110 this year. Um, and then I don't know if those who are uh, rooting for Mexico um, saw a tough, uh, a tough match this morning. Um, they won, but didn't make it into the, the round of 16 because... Uh, they, there was the, the goal differential was was in Poland's favor, so Poland advanced. Um, but it's been a fun season of uh, watching some sports, having having a good time. Um, but uh, yeah, so tonight we are, like I said, going to be starting our uh, trajectory toward Christmas. And one of the things that we uh, have enjoyed doing over the course of the years is studying the many Old Testament prophecies that. Uh, essentially speak to the coming of Christ. Um, when Jesus was born, 
uh, it, it didn't happen out of nowhere. It wasn't something that um, just took place and, and we start in the story of you know, Joseph and Mary, but hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, his birth was foretold by the prophets of old in the Old Testament that uh, gave us these promises and these prophecies that this, was, this would happen. Um, so this evening, we're going to start in one of those prophecies by going to the book of Micah. So I'd like to encourage you to go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Micah. I know we typically have the uh, scriptures on the screens. We're working on them tonight, but there might be something going on with the computer. So um, hopefully you have uh, either a Bible with you or a Bible app. Um, if you do not have a Bible or a Bible app, I encourage you to maybe look around the sanctuary and consider moving and sitting next to somebody who does have a Bible or Bible app so that you could look on the scriptures together with them so that we can uh, engage in Bible study this evening. So even as we get ready to look at Micah, we're going to look at Micah chapter 5. We're going to look at the whole chapter of Micah chapter 5 and because I believe there's a lot in here that really is prophetic and gives us the ability to uh, start to for, forecast and foresee what will take place in the life of Jesus. Micah chapter 5. So even before we get there, to broaden back out and look at this uh, season of Christmas, um, the operative word here in Micah chapter 5 that connects us to the story of the birth of Christ is the mention of the city Bethlehem. Can everybody say Bethlehem? Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a Hebrew word, um, and it is a, uh, a city of significance in, uh, in, in the people of Israel, in the story of Israel, the land of Israel. And the, the meaning of Bethlehem, it, it comes from two different words that are put together. Beth, B-E-T-H, uh, comes from the Hebrew word bait, not like fishing bait. Um, but bait, which means house. All right, everybody say house. So Beth is house. Lechem is the word that means bread in Hebrew, bread. Um, but the, when, it's, when Lechem is ref, uh, referred to in Scripture, it doesn't only refer to actual bread. It's talking about sustenance or food. Um, you know, we might say like, oh, yeah, I had to go break bread with a friend of mine. You don't mean you literally ate bread, Right. It could, you could have been having all kinds of different foods, um, but essentially it's the, the generic word. So the meaning uh, Bethlehem is house of bread, uh, which is the, the, the definition of the, this famous city. Now, before Jesus was born, can anybody else here tonight, since this is Bible study, tell me uh, why Bethlehem is important uh, prior to the birth of Jesus? Can anybody uh, throw it out there and... and um, make a connection, prior to the birth of Jesus, why was Bethlehem an important city? Right, Stephanie says ancestors were from there, which is correct. I'm looking for a specific reference to a specific ancestor. King David. So Bethlehem is where David was from. Um, but remember, before David was king, he was one of the youngest of, of uh, multiple brothers, right? In fact, when we read the story of King David, 
And when Samuel came to look for the next king after Saul, um, David's father brought out brother after brother after brother after brother, all the older brothers, all the stronger brothers, right? All the wiser brothers. And every single time one of David's brothers came out, uh, Samuel said, this isn't him, right? They brought out another brother. This isn't him, brought out another brother. This isn't him. Remember, David's brothers were the ones that were out on the front lines of the battlefield when they were facing Goliath. So David went to that battlefield, not to fight Goliath originally. He went to take them tamales. Some of you are like, seriously? No, no, no. Um, he went to take them food. He went to take them food, uh, and he was supposed to just drop it off. David's first job was Uber Eats, right? He, he was a shepherd and an Uber Eats driver, and he goes out there to give his brothers food. And while he's out there, that's when um, he, he recognizes and something stirs in his heart. It bothered him that the entire army of Israel was afraid of this giant, right? And um, so, so the story of David is significant. Thank you, Tabitha, for mentioning to us that Bethlehem is on the map largely because of David and his family, um, because that's where he came from. Um, and we, like I said, David was a shepherd. So that means uh, when you go out to Bethlehem, uh, were there any here who have been a part of any of the uh, Israel trips? All right, we've got a few right here. So if you ever have a chance to go to the Holy Land, um, which I had a chance to go in 2011, um, you can go out and visit Bethlehem, and you'll see it's just like wide open country, right? Hilly, um, not a whole lot of buildings, not a whole lot of um, civilization in terms of, you know, streets. I mean, it's like dirt roads still to this day, most of Bethlehem. And, of course, they have like downtown Bethlehem and, you know, a number of other things that are right there. But right on the outskirts, you could still see when we pulled up into Bethlehem over 10 years ago when I went out there to visit, there were still sheep. <laughs> running up and down the hills, and still shepherds with iPods and, you know, earbuds walking around with Oakley sunglasses. You know, it was, it was a cool sight to see. It's like a modern shepherd, you know. But who were they? 12-year-olds, boys, 13-year-old boys, you know, just like David was when he was a shepherd in this same exact city, Bethlehem. So I, I share all this backdrop on Bethlehem because this is giving us information as to the significance of the birth of Jesus, right? Which took place in, there we go, Bethlehem, all right. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Okay, now here's a trivia question, Bible trivia question really quickly. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus raised? Na right, Nazareth, yeah, yeah. So, so Jesus was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth, okay? Um, so again, geographically, Bethlehem and Nazareth, probably about 45 minutes to an hour away from each other. Nazareth is north um, of Bethlehem. Nazareth is right next to the Sea of Galilee, which is why Jesus is referred to as a Galilean, right? And the disciples that he called were from the Galilean region as well. Um, so that's where his home was. And the only reason why he was born in Bethlehem was because they were going back for a census. And during the time of census, they had to go back to their hometown. Uh, no matter where they were living, they had to go back to where they, they were from and they had to to go and be, be recorded as part of the census. So that's, what, that's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem specifically. Okay, so 
We're giving a little bit of context for Bethlehem. We're thinking about the Christmas story in general. And then we get this really amazing passage in Micah chapter 5, which is roughly five to six hundred years before the birth of Jesus. Roughly five to six hundred years before the birth of Jesus is this prophecy in Micah. So I want you to keep that in mind. Keep, keep in mind five to six hundred years earlier before Jesus was born. This is what we're about to read right now as we look at Micah. All right. Again, doing a little bit of equivalency to our, our modern contemporary time. Right now we're in the year 2022. Go back about 500 years. We're talking about somewhere in the, in the, uh, the realm of like the 1500s. That's a long time ago, isn't it? 1500s? Like... Only people that were here around then were like, let's see what, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, 1492, right? So we're talking about all the way back then, 1500s. So that's the gap between when Micah prophesied here in Micah chapter 5 and the birth of Jesus. So quite a bit of time. So let's look at what it says in Micah chapter 5, and then we'll, we'll uh, take this, this prophecy uh, apart one verse at a time. I'll just read through a big chunk of it initially. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will securely They will live securely, for then in his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion amongst the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up and triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed." In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities And I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Micah chapter 5. So this is one of the prophetic passages, uh, specifically verse 2, 
is the verse that often is referred to when we think about the, the prophecy of the, the birth of the Messiah. So I want us to kind of take a, a step back and look at this passage together as we think about the meaning of, of this prophecy and how it is uh, giving us a bit of a, a, a foretaste for what's to come. So it says there, like I said, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from the ancient times. So this is, uh, again, one of those scriptures that we see Micah pointing out here that, uh, that the, somebody who is coming, a ruler who is coming, one who has uh, or, origins that are from ancient times is going to come out of a place that is not really widely known for being a place of power. Um, in fact, if we think about power and power uh, centers, right, let's think about the United States of America. As we think about like how we are uh, gathered together, we think of really big cities like Los Angeles, a big city, San Francisco on the West Coast, jump over to the East Coast, New York, Chicago. We've got these huge cities where there's a lot of big buildings and important businesses that take place in Israel during this time. Oftentimes people would think of a place like Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been the city where uh, all the important things happen. The temple is there. People travel from all over to go and worship in the temple, right? Um, they wouldn't think twice to stop in Bethlehem on their way to Jerusalem. They just go straight to the big city. Um, now, again, as we think about the time of Jesus, another city that would have been prominent, that, that wasn't exactly close to the, to the nation of Israel, but would have been close culturally is the city of Rome. Right? Rome was a center. There were Roman centurions that were placed within the, uh, the region of Israel. And so Rome would have been another one of those cities that kind of was, would have been considered the center of the world. So you've got places like Rome. You've got places like Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel. Um, and, but nobody would think that anything significant or important would come out of a, a shepherd town like Bethlehem. Which is why Micah says here, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me a ruler over Israel. So let's unpack this for a second, because I think, again, even as we think about our own lives and start making some applications, oftentimes when we are expecting from God a work from God or for God to come through on our behalf, oftentimes we have a picture in our mind, of what it looks like for God to work in our lives. Right, we say, God, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. I want you to do it in this time frame, and I want you to bring this to pass. We have a long list of things that were, it's almost like sitting on Santa's lap in the, in the mall, and uh, break out your list with God and say, all right, Lord, here is my list, right? And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, thank God for all those Santas and all those malls. I mean, never mind. There's only one Santa for the children in the, in the room who sit there patiently listening, right? It's funny. Um, I took my kids to, to see Santa at the mall this past weekend. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to see, like, my 10-year-old, the way that he thinks, my 7-year-old, the way that she thinks, and then my 4-year-old, the way that he thinks, right? My 10-year-old's kind of like, I'm just going to do this because if not, then, you know, my mom and dad aren't going to give me anything. 
<laughs> so I'm going to play along with it, but, you know, he's, like, winking at us, like, as he's talking about, you know, yeah, you know, there's, like, a post office box right there that says North Pole on it, and you could put your little letters in there, and, um, and, and, you know, my daughter's like, do those really go to the North Pole? And Joseph's looking at me, like, winking in his eye, like, they do, huh, Dad? They do, huh? I'm like, oh, man, this guy's too old. He didn't even want to sit on Santa's lap. He was like, oh, that's weird, man. He gave him a knuckle, you know, fist bump. Um, and then my daughter, you know, she's kind of in between, but she likes Christmas magic and all that kind of stuff, so she's going along. And then my four-year-old, he's all in, right? But the one thing he couldn't figure out was he was looking around to try to figure, so, you know, he was asking me all these detailed questions. You ever get questions from your kids, so they just start going more and more detailed, and then you have to, like, man, do I got to keep making things up right now, right? Because he's like, so, Dad, um, what time does the mall open? You know, and I'm like, why are you asking me that question? You know, where does he come in from? So finally I looked up and there was a, there was a skylight above us. And I was like, he comes in, opens up the skylight, and then comes in through the skylight. And he was like, all right, can we spend the night here so I can see it when it happens? And I was like, nah, the mall security wouldn't allow that, you know. Anyway, how did I get there? Oh, okay, I remember now. Just like a kid coming up to Santa with their list of things, that's how we often come to God. And, and we have this prescribed um, list of how we want God to work. Instead of recognizing that he says here, hey, guess what? There is a ruler who's coming, who's going to rule over Israel, and he's coming from a place that none of you expect. He's coming from a city that nobody would consider great, nobody would consider important, in fact, in some ways, it'll be so tucked away that when this birth takes place, the majority of the world's not even going to realize that the Son of God was just born. In other words, God is working in our lives in ways that are not always big and flashy in the biggest city, on the biggest stage, in the biggest ways, but it doesn't mean that he's not at work doing things for us that we need in our own lives. Like sending his own son to be born in a town called Bethlehem instead of a prominent place like Jerusalem. I mean, think about it. If God was really trying to be strategic about the birth of his own son and wanted everybody to know, then Jesus would have been born in Jerusalem. He would have been born in Rome. He would have been born in, in, in uh, Athens. He would have been born in Alexandria. He would have been born in one of the great cities of the world, not in some backcountry shepherd town. But God works in big ways and God works in small ways. And we should never get to the point where we have become so accustomed to only wanting God to work in big ways that we ignore the, the small ways that he's at work in our lives every single day. Right, Bethlehem is humble beginnings. So when you think of the word Bethlehem and when we, you read the word Bethlehem and when we get to the New Testament story of the birth of Christ and you come across Bethlehem, remember, do not start thinking of these grand thoughts about Bethlehem. I mean, Bethlehem was out in the middle of nowhere. Didn't even have streetlights. They needed a star, right? But God is still at work even in the small things. God is still at work even in those things in our lives that we uh, were expecting a little bit more. Guess what? God is still at work, regardless of our expectations. 
Right? He says, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me a ruler over Israel whose origins are from old and from ancient times. So here Micah, the prophet, again, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, is reminding those who are in other, hearing this prophecy that uh, though this Savior is going to be born in this small town called Bethlehem, the origins of this Savior go way back. In fact, we believe in our own theology that Jesus, and this is a fun conversation with me and my kids as well, uh, is, has, is not separated whatsoever from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So at the creation of the universe, Jesus was there, right? Um, so my son and I are talking, and he's like, Dad, um, I, I remember this verse in the scripture, but was it God or Jesus? And I started telling him, like, son, they're the same. What do you mean they're the same? Wasn't Jesus born, you know, in, in Bethlehem and Mary, his mom, and Joseph, his dad? Say, yes, in a certain extent, but he also has existed for all eternity. Amen. And that's our theology, that though Jesus was born uh, in the form of a man, in the form of a human, uh, in Bethlehem, uh, the Christ himself has existed for all eternity. That for all eternity, God has existed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It wasn't God the Father and let me make the Son and let me make the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden, the three of us are together. For all eternity, the Trinity has been one. Has been together. Which is why our, our theology and belief that even though Jesus was born as a baby, humbled himself. Philippians gives us a wonderful uh, scripture that talks about the, the moment before uh, the birth of Christ. In fact, why don't we look at that together? Let's flip over to Philippians chapter 2. So that you can kind of track what I'm talking about in terms of the eternality of Christ. Because we don't want to get to the point where we somehow believe that, like, the person of Jesus only started the moment he, uh, he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. No, Jesus has existed for all eternity, um, but what takes place in the manger scene is what we refer to as the incarnation, which means God put on flesh, right? Incarnation, to put on flesh. God became a human in the person of Jesus, but Jesus has, has preexisted. So let's look at... Um, Philippians chapter 2. Do you have it? All right. Uh, verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now pay attention to this part. Who, being in, the, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him 
to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So did you see here in Philippians chapter 2 this reference of Jesus humbling himself? Did everybody catch that? It says he humbled himself and he was in the very nature of God, but he did not consider equality with God. So he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness. So in other words, this peek into uh, the, uh, what's taking place in the story of God is that uh, in the person of Jesus was a, a humble decision from heaven to say, I will take on their likeness. I will humble myself. I will leave the throne of heaven, the right hand of the Father, to come down, to put on flesh, to be born as a baby, to wear diapers, right? To cry, to be raised as a teenager, to go through puberty, Right? To experience all the things that humans experience. Jesus himself made the decision to subject himself to that experience. Now, if you think about that in comparison to other contemporary religions, to the religions that were surrounding the Jews, a God taking on human likeness was unheard of. There was a, 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 there was a, a, a very distinct separation between the gods and the humans, Right? There were the divine, and there were the, those who were like us, those who were mortal. And so in this story, it's one of a kind where Jesus, who is God, made a decision to say, I will leave my place in heaven to come and to walk amongst us. Aren't you glad that he did? He lived a sinless life, a perfect example for us. The Bible, in Hebrews, it says he was tempted in every way. Tested in every way, just like us, so, so that we don't serve a God, uh, a Christ, a high priest, who is unsympathetic to those of us who carry temptation and sin. Is essentially was saying, Jesus was tempted in every single way, and yet he prevailed. So his decision was essentially to say, I'm willing to step away from my heavenly throne to come and to live amongst us because we needed a Savior. We needed a savior. Throughout scripture, we see the activity of God over and over again, recognizing, I mean, we've been studying Genesis. We're taking a break from Genesis. Uh, we'll get back to our study in, in the Bible uh, after the Christmas season. Um, but as we take a break from, from that sto story and study, if you have been with us for the last few weeks as we've been looking at Genesis, we see the same cycle continue beyond Genesis that we as people fall short that we sin, that we disobey, right? And then what needs to happen, right? When Adam and Eve sin, what happened in that, at that point? It says that God recognized that they saw themselves as naked. They needed to be covered. So a sacrifice was made so that they could be covered. So their sins were covered, right? So a sacrifice. So what happens? The cycle is we fall short. God intervenes, creates a pathway for us back to him to reconcile us to him. And then what happens after that? We fall short again, unfortunately. So throughout Scripture, we have in the early, uh, in the stories of Genesis, we have the fathers of the faith, who are kind of like those who leave these examples for us. Starting, you know, we just started in the story of Noah, where we were looking at somebody who was one of those examples of, of God using them to spare 
uh, many others. And then, of course, we have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Jacob. And then later on, throughout the Old Testament, we have the kings, we have the prophets that come to try to bring God's people back to God after moments of sin and moments of uh, of wickedness and waywardness that God always provides someone, the judges during that period, to come and redirect God's people back to himself. But time and time again, no matter how many people, no matter how many prophets or judges or kings God sends, it never seems to solve the sin issue entirely. It's like a momentary point of reconciliation until we mess up again. And in some ways, it's similar to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Old Testament sacrificial system was at regular periods throughout the year, uh, in order to atone for our sin, uh, people would have to come into the temple with different kinds of sin offerings to bring before animal sacrifices that would create, again, reconciliation with God over and over again. But that still didn't break the sin cycle until, finally, Jesus came. And the one who lived a perfect life, unblemished in every single way, uh, was nailed to a cross with your sin and my sin upon himself to finally deal with this sin issue that we couldn't deal with on our own. God said, I need to get more involved. And he gave himself up for us. So Philippians is this explanation that essentially says that Jesus uh, did not equal considered equality to to live in the same very same nature but came down and took on flesh and he dwelt among us so let's go back to Micah and we're going to continue by looking at verse 3 therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers returned to join the Israelites. Now, isn't that interesting here? Again, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, we have this passage in Micah that's referring to someone bringing forth a son. So again, the first reference in verse 2 was the reference to Bethlehem, which is where Jesus was born. The second reference in, chapter, in verse 3 is the reference to a time when she who is in labor bears a son. So who is that referring to in the story of Jesus. That's referring to Mary, right? Um, and, and it's talking about Israel being abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. Now, interestingly, uh, one of the things that we study when we look at the life of Jesus is that when he was born, like I mentioned earlier, Israel was under Roman occupation. And they, they had a king but many referred to the king of Israel as more of a puppet king because the people who were really in charge were the Romans, the, the Roman emperor, the Caesar. And so it's, verse 3 is foreshadowing the fact that there was going to be an abandonment that would take place until this son is born. It says, and then the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Now, I love this uh, verse or this section of the verse in, in verse 3 of Micah chapter 5 because in a lot of ways, it's foreshadowing the fact that through Jesus, all of Israel will begin to reconcile with the Father. When we see Jesus coming and he, again, he's born and he 
begins to call disciples to himself, and they take upon that mission to go and preach the gospel, right? The gospel is spread throughout the entire world. And so we see this, this prophecy that through this son, through this act, through this birth, that all of the brothers, all of the Israelites will be gathered back together and will return. So let's continue reading. Let's look at verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they will, they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Oh, I love this verse. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Now, who does that sound like, church? That sounds exactly like our Lord, doesn't it? It sounds exactly like Jesus, who becomes our good shepherd. He will stand in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they will live securely, for then, in his, then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. I don't know about you, the more and more we continue to read this prophecy, the more I see a connection between what Micah's talking about and the coming of Jesus, Right? Micah's referring specifically to this prophecy that we could see fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Now let's look and unpack for a second uh, this meaning in verse 4. It's interesting that we've been talking about Bethlehem and we've been uh, re referencing what that town is like quite a bit. Um, and, and the analogy that's used here to reference what this, uh, what this son is going to be like is the analogy of a shepherd. So there's double meaning here. He's saying he's coming from Bethlehem and there will be a shepherd who will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And this is a theme we see throughout Scripture. Psalm 23 is a wonderful passage that reminds us of God who is our good shepherd. That we uh, are like sheep. And as sheep, sometimes we go astray. Sometimes we choose to go on our own path instead of staying with our shepherd, right? Even though our shepherd knows what's best for us, even though our shepherd knows where we could go to find rest and where we can go to find water, and where we can go to find food, instead we, on our own, venture off into our own uh, path into our own choices, right? Not trusting in the fact that we have a good shepherd who knows exactly what we need. Uh, what is, what's another role for a shepherd? Another reason why a shepherd uh, would, would have their job is to protect the flock against wild animals, right? Like wolves, like that would come and try to pick apart Especially the, the weak sheep, the small sheep, the, the elder sheep, right? Any of the sheep that, that uh, weren't, uh, you know, in their prime would be easy targets. And so the shepherd's there to fend off the enemy, right? Um, we know that the scriptures say the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus says, but I have come to give you life and that more abundant, so let's, let's uh, take a look through this passage here as we look at the shepherd. Why don't we go over to Psalm 23 together. 
so that we could take a look at this correlation between the, the, share, the, the shepherd motif in Psalm 23. Go ahead and flip there. When you have it, go ahead and say amen. So again, Micah's prophecy is saying this son who is going to be born in Bethlehem is going to be a shepherd. So let's look at verse, verse 1 and following in, in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, and I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So this is King David's song that he's uh, essentially, again, we talked about King David as being a shepherd himself, but he's saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Isn't that awesome? Just to even think about the fact that a shepherd here is saying, I've got a shepherd of my own. That, there, there's some humility in that, in recognizing that. I think we oftentimes struggle, especially as those of us who are adults, men, women, parents, oftentimes we feel like we have to have all the right answers, or we have to have all the strength, or we have to be able to pull ourselves together when we go through difficult times, or whatever it may be. And, you know, hey, God gives us that strength to get through difficult times, but there are moments when we need to recognize that even though sometimes we are in the role of shepherd, we have a, a good shepherd who's bigger, who's stronger, who's mightier, who's able to uh, provide care for us when we feel like we are always having to provide care for others, who's able to provide encouragement for us when we feel like we're always having to provide encouragement for others, Right? We recognize here that the Lord is our shepherd. So when we look at this passage in Micah, and Micah is referring to the one who is to come, it refers to him as a shepherd. So let's take a look at verse 5. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, we will raise up against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. He will be our peace, is what it starts with in verse 5. How many of us are thankful that Jesus is our peace? Right. In fact, he's, he's referred to as Prince of Peace. Isaiah also prophesies. We're going to look at that in one of our uh, future Bible studies leading up to, to the Christmas uh, celebration. But Isaiah refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. 
And Micah says, he will be our peace. You know, it's interesting to think about um, this notion or this theme of peace during this time of the year. Many of us right now, even as we take a look at where we are, we're right after Thanksgiving. Um, hopefully, some, many of us had a great time with our family, enjoying some downtime, uh, getting some R&R, uh, relaxation, some good food, hopefully. And then all of a sudden, Christmas is coming, and, and man, it, it, it can get to the point where things start taking place so quickly that we feel anything but peace, Get busier and busier, more and more tired. We got to run these errands. We got to go and buy this thing. And next thing you know, it's like all the peace that, that we're supposed to be celebrating in Jesus, who is our Prince of Peace, who is coming to be born. All of that peace that, that we're supposed to be reminded of, we, we lose it because we get caught up in all kinds of things around us that create everything but peace, creates chaos, right? Where we get wrapped up into the hustle and the bustle. We get wrapped up into commercialism. We get wrapped up into all kinds of things that cause us to experience anxiety, stress, feelings of being overwhelmed, not being able to really say, Lord, what is the real meaning of this season? What is the real meaning of us coming to remember the fact that you were born in a manger all those years ago? What is the real meaning of the fact that you came to deal with these issues that we carry, these sin issues and these uh, 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 temptation issues and issues of doubt and issues of going through things that we don't feel like we have the strength to, to get through on our own? What is the true meaning of all those things? And, and rather than really resting in the fact that he is our peace, instead, what do we do? We run faster. We do more. We clutter ourselves even more. <laughs> Right? We continue to make our lives busier and busier, fuller and fuller, unable to truly reckon with the peace that God is offering us in this season. So how do we combat that? What's our, what's our plan of attack to combat the ongoing temptation that we have to pursue lives of chaos? In some ways, that's where our faith comes into play. This is where we learn to say, Lord, instead of allowing my life to be driven by the things that I see with my flesh eyes, I want to be driven by your spirit. I want to be guided by your spirit. And I want to be led into my day. I want to be led into this week and into this next month in ways that truly understand, recognize, and experience your peace, right? So I'm going to invite you to do something with me right here. Go ahead and close your eyes. And we're going to practice inviting the peace of God into our lives. Maybe you came into church this evening and you've been running 100 miles per hour, going from work to responsibilities, back home, jumping on the freeway, getting here to church. Maybe you're ready to say, Lord, I want to experience the depth of your peace in my own life. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and take a deep breath in and out.
And then take another deep breath. Inhale, hold it for two seconds and then exhale. open your eyes what was that like to just take a little over a minute just to be in stillness what was that like did it feel good did it feel a little uncomfortable the temptation that we often have when we slow ourselves down and quiet our quiet our minds quiet our hearts is to really quickly try to fill that space again. I know for people like me, I feel, when, I have, when I give myself time to do that, I start feeling a little bit of guilt because there's something that I should be doing. I can't sit still. I can't afford to because if I'm sitting still, then that means more work for my wife, right? And so I'm like, I don't want that, so I got to stay busy. And then she's thinking the same thing, and the next thing you know, none of us ever take a break. Whether we feel like we got to fill every single second of every single day with something when in the, at the end of the day, really, the more moments we take like that, we, took a, we didn't take a long time, did we? It wasn't 10 minutes. It wasn't even 15 minutes. It was just a couple minutes of stillness and silence. But even in that little bit of time, wasn't that refreshing? Just to say, like, all right, no news, no scrolling, right? God bless the World Cup, but no FIFA. No uh, college football playoff, you know, question. Just a little bit of silence, a little bit of stillness. So the reason why I, I led us through that really short exercise was to let us know that it do, you don't need to have three hours or a, a weekend-long retreat in order to find moments to connect with God. It could really be in a few minutes of just saying, Lord, I'm just going to quiet myself right now. And the neat thing about it is when we take time to be intentional about connecting with God, it really does make everything else better, right? Oh, if I'm so worried about all these different things and they're clouding my thoughts and my minds and I feel like I got to stay busy and I can't afford to slow down and I can't afford to take a couple minutes, then guess what? I'm taking that hurried self, right, where I'm trying to be in a hundred places at once, not able to actually practice being present or being in the presence of God, then I'm going to take that same self into my role as a dad who feels rushed and hurried, right, impatient. I'm going to take that same role into my life as a husband. I'm going to take that same role into my life in my own job as opposed to coming in from a place of being able to experience the peace and presence of God. 
right? Aren't we different people when we experience God's peace in our lives? We have a little bit more patience. We have a little bit more understanding. We have a little bit more kindness and compassion, right? Uh, like I said, I took the kids to go see the mall Santa. I mean, the Santa. And, uh, man, trying to get through that parking lot was crazy. First of all, getting into the parking lot was crazy. Just getting off the street into the parking lot. And then you get in there. Oh, man, everybody thinks they're a NASCAR driver or they're driving a monster truck, whatever it may be. They're honking at each other. They're, get, they're throwing signs out the window, you know. And it wasn't the peace sign, Julio. I'm not kidding. There was a moment where I almost felt like I had to put the car in park to go and break up what was about to be a fight between a guy and somebody behind. I think the person behind them might have, like, you know, bumped into them from the back. And there was about to be a big brawl in the parking lot. I'm like, man, all this for Christmas. That's kind of the opposite of the peace of God. Right? Why? High-strung, impatient, right? No room for peace, no room to breathe, no room to be compassionate, right? Instead, this Christmas season, I want to challenge all of us as a church to say, Lord, I'm going to challenge myself this season to experience your peace in a new kind of way. Amen? He is our peace. All right, let's finish because we're almost toward the end of this. Verse 7, the remnant of Jacob, Micah chapter 5, will be in the midst of many people like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. This is a, a prophecy. This is a, a prophecy that is essentially saying God is on your side and God will give you victory. Why? Through the one who is prophesied, the son who is to come, right? That the remnant. So this is a good word for us to be thinking like there might be some in here who are saying, man, Lord, What I'm going through right now in my life, I kind of feel like I've been forgotten. And I feel so far away from you that I'm not sure if anybody knows where I am. I'm not sure if you know where I am. And I'm not sure if there's any hope for me in my life. Micah chapter 5 is saying here, no matter where you are, I'm coming to rescue you. No matter where you've been scattered, I'm bringing you back to myself. And he's going to use the one who is being prophesied about Jesus, to do that. He says, your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies and all your foes will be destroyed. Verse 10, in that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. So some of us are like, okay, what's, what's Micah talking about here? Where's he going with all this? 
right? What he's saying here is he's, he's talking about things that we rely upon for power, right? That's what horses do. That's what chariots do. That's what these cities do, these fortified cities. These are things that we put our trust in, right? If I got enough horses, we're going to win the battle. If I got enough chariots, we're going to win the battle. If I have fortified cities, I don't need to be worried about my enemy. But what God is saying here is you can't trust in your stuff because it's not going to save you. So he says, I'm going to destroy all those things. I'm going to destroy your witchcraft and the idols that you have, right? Many of us know that we, in our culture, carry many idols that we look to to give us strength, right? Idols like money, idols like our job, idols like our relationships, idols like our own, our, our own well-being, success, fame, whatever it may be. We have these different idols. What is an idol? Something that takes our attention away from God as the center of our lives, that could be a lot of things, right? I mean, for some people, it's like gaming, right? Just gaming all the time, right? I know somebody who is a grown man and addicted to gaming and had to go through rehab because of an addiction to video games. I'm, not, I'm, I'm saying that because whatever it may be, there are so many different kinds of things that could take our attention and become the center of our lives. God is saying here, whatever it is, that's an idol, whatever it is that we think gives us power, whatever it is that we think we can rely upon to give us strength, God is saying, if it's not me, it needs to get moved out of the way. Amen. It says, then you will no longer bow down to the work of your own hands. I will uproot from you, among you, your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. So this is the prophecy from Micah that gives us this picture into what we're to expect. So again, when this birth takes place hundreds of years later in Bethlehem, it didn't happen out of nowhere that God had already began to plant the seed that this is going to happen in this particular way. Right? And we're able to connect the dots now because we're able to see all of these things transpire and see that Micah was talking about none other than Jesus. Let's finish going back to verse 2, and then we'll close in a word of prayer. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, the ancient times. Amen. So what does Bethlehem mean? Good, good. Beth, house. Lehem, bread. House of bread. So, so Micah is prophesying here that Jesus was going to be coming uh, to this town called Bethlehem and that though it would be considered small, um, that a great ruler would emerge from that small place. Amen? Amen. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this evening, for the prophecies uh, throughout the Old Testament that point to your coming. Um, we, we thank you, God, that uh, we're reminded here, even as we did a little bit of studying into Bethlehem, uh, that you don't always work in ways that we were expecting. You don't always work in ways that um, would make sense from a human perspective. But you are always working according to your own time and according to your own will. 
Uh, we're reminded here that uh, Bethlehem was considered small. Maybe some might say considered insignificant. And yet from that insignificance, you brought forth the Savior of the world. So Lord, may we be reminded of the ways in which you are working in our lives that might seem small, might seem inconsequential or insignificant. We want to take time today to say thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for the small blessings, the ones that we don't even think about on a day-to-day basis because we're so busy uh, trying to keep up with the fast pace of life that we forget to say thank you for breath in our lungs. We forget to say thank you for a roof over our head. We forget to say thank you for the many blessings that you provided us with. But you're present in, in small and unexpected places as well. Uh, Lord, thank you for, for being our good shepherd and for providing a shepherd for us. Uh, we so easily are distracted and go astray. We leave the flock. We do our own thing. We meander or we fall behind or we go too far ahead or we go out in different dangerous cliff sides that we should stay away from. Thank you that you're our good shepherd, Lord. Thank you that later on uh, in your own ministry, you would tell beautiful stories like the shepherd who left 99 just to find the one that was straying away. And you've done that in our lives time and time again. And so we give you thanks for being that good shepherd in our own lives. And here in Micah, we're reminded that you, the prophesied Savior and Messiah, would be our peace. And we confess this evening that there are so many things working against us in the lives that we live that cause us to not experience the fullness of your peace. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, you would give us direction, guidance, and diligence to welcome your peace and to walk in your peace. Um, to not sacrifice your peace because of our own desires, our own ambitions, our own paces that we become addicted to. Father, we, uh, we want to lay those things down so that we can walk even now, even in the midst of the many worries, the many cares, the many responsibilities that we have, we believe that you still want us to carry and walk in your peace. So guide us in that way, Lord. Pray that maybe even tomorrow, regardless of what may be on the schedule, teach us how to experience your peace tomorrow. Maybe somebody here is worried about not having a full night's sleep tonight because of things that have been on their mind or not being able to get rest. Lord, I pray that they would be able to lay down and uh, breathe in and breathe out and recognize that you are with them and that you, they can even rest um, knowing that your peace uh, covers them. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for these promises and prophecies that we can hold on to as they point to you and your birth. We thank you that you are a humble God, humble Savior who would leave your throne on high to come and be born in the form of a baby. You did that for us.
So we give you praise tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, church.